following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, I just want to begin by saying thank you to all the pastors that represent the Thrive Network. Um, for you guys, for praying for this event. I know that a few people have been on a prayer train for the past three days. And to just hear everybody worshiping and um, saying amen uh, to what the worship leaders were, were saying. There's a sense of hunger in this place. And I trust that the Lord will meet us because he meets those that are hungry. Can we just pray one more time and ask the Lord to speak to us? Father, we are, we are humbled to be in your presence. Lord, we just pray right now that we wouldn't think about who's on our left and who's on our right. We would give you our attention. We would give you our hearts. Lord, we submit to the word of God in this moment. All our pre-understandings, all our presuppositions, Lord, we, we put them aside and we say, Lord, speak to my heart. Here's my heart and speak to it. We long for you to infuse your life into us. And that requires us to humble ourselves. So we do that in this moment as we open your word. And we pray, Lord, that this weekend would not only be for this weekend, but for the rest of our lives. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, refocus 2017. Usually when you name a conference something, there's an intention behind it. And refocus has this idea of reprioritizing, of reevaluating, of looking at where we have brought our attention up to this point in our lives and through the word of God, asking him to readjust where we put our time and our energy into because life is so short, is it not? And this idea of refocus, this idea of readjusting, this idea of reevaluating, it's a matter of the changing of a mind. It's a matter of changing the way we think, is it not? And this is something that's consistent throughout Scripture. This is something where we see in Colossians 3, 2, where it says, set your mind on things above and not on things on earth. Or 2 Corinthians four eighteen, where it says, let us not fix our eyes on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so we see this idea of coming together as God's people and refocusing our thinking on what matters most. And there's this term that's used concerning this rethinking. It's a term that we don't really hear too much these days. That word's repentance. Repent. The very root word of repentance, of repent, means to change one's mind. And so whenever you see in the scriptures where it says repent, or the word repentance, or a calling to repent, whether you're lost or whether you're saved, it's this understanding of changing the way you think. Change the way you think about God. Change the way you look at sin. Change the way you're living your life. It's this idea of rethinking everything and aligning to the word of God. Why? Because what you believe and what you perceive will determine how you behave and what you practice. Godly perception develops 
godly practice. What you believe in will determine how you behave. And so when we see this command to repent, to turn in repentance, it's this idea of changing one's direction. And that's what we're going to explore this weekend, this idea of repentance. And as we hear God's word, and as we come and worship, may we respond to it in repentance. Repentance is a gift. It's the opportunity to turn and to find ourselves walking in the path of life. Refocus. We don't want to just refocus. Because it's easy to refocus. It's easy to take a weekend like this and just refocus. The hard part is staying focused. It's what happens after this weekend that matters. It's how long we stay focused after this weekend. And I pray that we would remain focused. Now, events like this are so special. God can move in events like this. And I have to testify, I've grown up in the church and I've come to events like this, but I have to say something to be honest before we begin anything. I've come to events like this. I've been challenged in a sense. But I haven't given my life to Jesus until I was 20 years old. You might be wondering, how old are you now? (laughs) Who let that kid up there? I'm wondering the same thing. How did they let me up here? I'm 25 years old. And I grew up in the church my whole life. And I've sat under things like this. But I haven't truly been born again until I was 20 years old. And I was asked to share my testimony tonight. But before we do that, I want to open up God's word to lay the foundation. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 21. This is what the Bible says, the Word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done." Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Here's what's happening. Jesus is explaining to His disciples right after Peter had the revelation that He is the Son of the living God. And now Jesus goes on to explain plainly that as the Messiah, he must suffer. He must die a torturous death and then be raised. And this idea did not click with Peter. Peter had this understanding. If you're the Messiah, you must be coming in to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. You must be coming in like that David-like figure to swiftly conquer through and bring in a triumphant victory. 
What is this talk of suffering? What is this talk of dying? What are you talking about, Jesus? And see, Peter did not understand the full will of God here. Peter, in this moment, was misinformed. And so what does he do? He takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, God, this can't happen to you. What are you talking about suffering and dying? You're the Messiah. We just dealt with that a few verses ago. The things that Christ said made Peter very uncomfortable. And I would argue that today in our generation, a lot of people take Peter's position. This idea of suffering, this idea of self-denial, this idea to submitting to the will of God regardless of the circumstances, this idea of not being comfortable in this life because we are exiles traveling through, like Peter and many people today, seems kind of repulsive. And though Jesus made it so clear in this text that this is the will of God, this is what ought to happen, like Peter, people take the word of God and say, well, Jesus, you couldn't have meant that. No, 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 Jesus, that's not what you said. Give up everything and follow you? Die to yourself? It has been granted to you to not only believe for his sake, but to also suffer for him? Hate your mother, your, your brother, your, your wife, your children, yes, even your own life? And we attempt to indirectly and sometimes even directly dismiss what Christ has made plain and clear. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, I'm not too comfortable what you're talking about, Jesus. But we're about to find out that Jesus does not take too kindly to those who try to twist what the will of God is. And this is very important for us to understand in the day that we're living today. The Bible says in Psalms 119 that forever, O Lord, is your word established in the heavens. Proverbs 30 verse 5 and 6 says that every word of God proves true and he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And so Jesus here is about to say something to Peter that's about to make him feel uncomfortable. He turned in verse 23 and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. A few verses ago he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Only a few verses later does he call him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, that's not just a random rebuke here. This is a very familiar phrase. We've seen this when Jesus was being tempted in Matthew chapter 4 by Satan himself. And the third attempted recorded temptation by Satan to Jesus in Matthew 4, 10 and 11, Jesus turns around to Satan and says, Be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God. What's the connection here? What Peter is suggesting in Matthew 16 is the same thing that Satan was suggesting in Matthew chapter 4. You can do this thing without getting on a cross. You don't have to suffer. Bow down to me and worship me and I'll give you all these things. You can win the allegiance of the people without getting on that cross. Don't die. You don't have to get on that cross. 
Just multiply bread. They'll follow you. And so he tells him, get behind me, Satan. Which is fascinating because in Luke 4, it says that when Satan finished tempting Jesus, he went away for another opportune time. And it seems like he found his opportunity through Peter. Not that he possessed Peter, but his influence in his thinking came. And Jesus recognized that kind of thinking. He said, get behind me, Satan. Peter's thinking was off. And Jesus says, because your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's idea of what it meant to fulfill the will of God did not align with Christ's perspective. Peter is in the danger here of developing his own personalized, self-produced understanding of who Christ is and what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus is about to clarify some things. Jesus is about to realign some things. Jesus is going to put Peter in a place where he has to refocus. And so what does he say? In the next verse, he's about to reveal some profound truth. He's about to show Peter, hey Peter, listen. Picking up a cross and dying on it is not only God's will for me, but it's my will for you. And so he says, not only to Peter, but his disciples. Peter just had that kind of a mouth that he could speak on behalf of the other disciples. Then Jesus told his disciples, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone, anyone would follow me, man or woman, boy or girl, college student or retired businessman, whether you're living in the jungles in Africa or you're living in a New York loft, whether you're living in Jesus' day or you're living in the 21st century, whether you're rich or poor, educated or not, anyone, at any time, in any place, including you and me, if anyone would come after me, he must do three things. He must deny himself. He must pick up a cross. And he must follow me. He must deny himself. Now, why are we talking about this right off the bat? Because many people have fallen into what Peter is thinking here. Like my mic, how it's falling off my face. Many people have unfortunately bought into this different thinking of what it means to follow Jesus. Many people, because of what they think, or rather they're misinformed or uncomfortable with the words of Christ, have developed their own personal understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And Jesus is about to set things straight. And you might be wondering, well, how do you know many people are thinking like that? Because I was one of them. We're going to get to that in a moment. And so what happens is Jesus now clarifies, if anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself. What does that mean? To disassociate yourself from yourself. In essence, what Jesus is saying when you must deny yourself, he is saying that your interests, your desires, your passions, the pursuits that you once had are now to be forsaken. You and I, by nature, are hostile and alienated towards God. Romans calls us enemies of God. We are not born good people. We are born hostile. Colossians 1.11 says, you are what? Rather, 21. You are hostile in your thinking, alienated towards God. 
And so when he says you, anyone, must deny yourself, what he's saying is you must divorce yourself from everything in your life that does not line up with the will of God, and you must marry yourself to the purposes of God by becoming one with Christ in faith. Deny yourself. And the ultimate picture of denying oneself is this. Pick up your cross. This is a problem for us. Because we have romanticized the cross. It's wall furniture. It's body art. You might be wearing one around your neck. I remember a few of us went out to go eat at a Thai restaurant. And the waitress had two cross earrings. So... Usually when you see something like that, you use it as an opportunity to ask a question and see if they're believers or not. And after we had our meal, I approached her and said, I like your earrings. They're crosses. Are you a Christian? And this was her response. No, it's just fashion. <laughs> Maybe you should look into what a cross means. Because it didn't mean that in Jesus' day. It didn't mean that to his immediate audience. That's for sure. Far from fashion. The cross in this day meant a tortured device that showed no hint of mercy to those who would take one upon their back. And so when Jesus is saying, I want you to take up your cross, that's exactly what he means. That's like modern day saying, pick up a noose and follow me. Pick up an electric chair and follow me. Pick up a cross. And follow me. And now he's not asking him to pick up a physical cross. It's symbolic. There's a picture there. Because there's a reality of what happens when a man picked up an actual cross. When a man picked up his cross, he lost all his rights. You can do anything to a man who is nailed upon a cross. You could spit on him. You can throw urine on him. You can mock him. You can poke him. You can stab him. A man who had a cross and a man who was nailed upon a cross lost all his rights. And as A.W. Tozer said, you knew one thing about a man who was carrying a cross. You knew this, he was never coming back. Pick up your cross. And what? Follow me. Follow me. You're not following yourself anymore. You're not following other ideas anymore. You're not following celebrities anymore. You're not following any other religion anymore. You're following me. There's a new king who sits upon the throne of your heart, and it's me. You submit to my word. You submit to my commands. You submit to my way of life. You follow me. I'm not just your Savior. I'm your Lord. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Why? Is God sadistic? Does he find pleasure in our pain? Is that what he's trying to promote here? No. All we have to do is look at the next verse. Forever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You and I will only experience life when we give our lives to the author of life. You and I will only experience true life when we submit ourselves to this command. It's when we die to ourselves that we experience life in Christ. So many people who are claiming to be Christians are not experiencing abundant life because they have not surrendered their life. 
He only gives abundant life to a surrendered life. Follow me because you will experience life and not just eternal life, but life now. You will experience life now. And so what you need to do is let go of what you're holding on to. Grab a hold of that cross with your name on it and your name on it and your name on it and my name on it. I want you to picture with me tonight a man who is drowning in the ocean. And he's going further in and the water's only getting colder and the water's only getting darker. And the reality is he's drowning because he has an 80-pound bag of gold tied around his waist. And he doesn't want to let go of it because he pursued this his whole life. Because he finds pleasure in these things. But that very thing is going to kill him. That very thing is the anchor that's bringing him down into a pit. And all he has to do is realize that this is not worth it. I have to untie this thing in order for me to get life. And so many people are living like that today. They're holding on to things that are weighing them down. And it's leading them to the very pit of hell. In some way, somehow, they think it's worth it. It's as ridiculous as a man who has a bag of gold tied around their waist, drowning in the ocean. And all they have to do is let go. Because on the other side of that water is a hand that's saying, I want to give you life. But I can't give you life until you let go. Let go. Let go of your life. And for my sake... If you give it for my sake, you will find it. You will find life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There is no price tag on a soul. Now Jesus is speaking of eternal perspective here. And you probably heard this phrase that there's no U-Haul that follows a hearse. You're not bringing anything to the grave. The only thing that's going to matter is your condition of soul when you stand before Him at the end of your life and my life. Why do I share this text today? Because this is one of the texts that changed my life. I grew up in a Christian home. God-fearing parents. They loved God. They did everything they could to raise me up in the ways of the Lord. But I want to be honest with you. This idea of repentance, this idea of giving up everything to follow Jesus, this idea of picking up a cross with your name on it and dying on that cross for the sake of Christ was very foreign in my context. The whole understanding of Christianity was Jesus loves you and He forgives you and just understand that and believe that in your head and just soak it up and walk on in your life. Whenever you do something bad, ask Him to sprinkle some blood on your life and just move forward. And like I said, my parents genuinely raised me up in the Lord. I shared this funny part of the story where my mom told me that the Bible was a sword. 
She told me that this book is a double-edged sword. This, this book has power. Now, in my mind, being in elementary school, I thought it was an actual sword. I thought that one day, if I held onto this Bible long enough, it will transform into a sword. <laughs> so I found myself in elementary school with my Gideon Bible in my back pocket, and my friends were like, what's in your pocket? I'm like, it's a sword. <laughs> Just wait. Just wait. But when I came to the place of being in high school and now you're open to the temptations of the world and you now you can drive and you can go places by yourself. I was quickly pulled into that lifestyle. No different from the world. Going out on Saturday, but here's the reality. Oh, I'm a Christian. Go to church on Sunday. Had a couple Christian friends. Parents were going to the service. There was a young adult meeting. You're going to the young adult meeting. But where was I? I was all the way in the back. I'm not calling anybody on the back, all right? <laughs> I was all the way in the back because during the worship, I would leave, drag my Christian friends to come with me and come back before the service ended. If there's somebody out there in the hallway that can hear me, we know where you're at. <laughs> and I want to say this to the young people. Hear me very good. You don't grow up into salvation. Hear me very good. Maybe you're an adult in this place. You don't inherit salvation because mom and dad are Christians. You have to make a decision for yourself to follow Jesus Christ. But my understanding was, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's the only thing I knew. And so I came to college. Now I can live on my own. I don't have mom and dad waking me up every Sunday morning to go to church. So that's where I found myself. 18 years old, 19 years old, studying in Toronto, Canada, pursuing an advertising degree. Life was good. I truly believed that I was a Christian. Going out with people, Hanging out, doing things that you're not supposed to do if you're a Christian. And still claiming to be a Christian. Ask me if I was a Christian. I was fully convinced I was a Christian. And so here I am pursuing life. Here I am with an ambition in my mind. Here I am gripping on to what I think life is. What was life to me? Six digit salary. A wife, a lab, dog, 2.5 kids, a white picket fence, the American dream. Let me tell you something. The American dream is a nightmare compared to what the Bible has for you. This is it. I wasn't a bad person. Come on. I was a good person. Just having some fun, just doing the things, you know, whatever. But I realized more and more because of what my parents put into my heart growing up. That there is more to life than this. Very quickly, let me tell you something, high school people, if you're thinking that college has something to offer to you, it's all a hoax. It's a lie. It's hype. Don't buy into it. Trust me. Trust from somebody who's been through it. It's all lies. So I remember at 20 years old, I found myself with an advertising job. Friends, everything that you think that you need in this life to be happy. 20 years old, taking the subway down to my job with my suit, my hair all combed up, 
have no idea how I got hired, giving marketing advice. If you've ever taken the subway, I don't know how it is here in America. I just moved here a couple years ago. But if you're in Canada and you take the subway, there's no other depressing place in the world than the subway for me. Because all it was for me was I was taking the subway, going back and forth, and I, I saw the same people sitting in the same seats almost every day, and they looked absolutely miserable. And I saw their faces, people sleeping on random people's shoulders. And I was like, what are these guys living for? These guys look depressed. And then I quickly realized at one point, I'm one of those people. And so something clicked inside of me. Because here I found myself at 20 years old with everything that the world says you need to have to be happy. Maybe not to its fullest extent, but having it and realizing I'm not fulfilled. And so one day I go on Facebook randomly and somebody posted this video of a preacher, and I still to this day don't know who posted it, of a preacher talking about eternity. Of eternal life. Of how so many people are investing in this life, they don't think about the next. And that one little three minute, four minute clip did something to my heart. It didn't change me immediately, but it did something to my heart. That's the word of God when it's talking about a sword. And so quickly I fell into depression. If you know what depression is like, you don't want to get out of bed. You don't care about your relationships. You don't care about how people see you. You just want to lay in bed. You're not motivated anymore. You don't want to do anything anymore. And here I found myself in that place at 20 years old. And so I lost my job. My relationships were now shallow. I didn't want to care about them. I didn't invest in them anymore. School was school. And for some reason in 2012, this idea popped into my mind. I have no idea where it came from. Clearly it was the Holy Spirit. To pick up this Bible and to read it as a New Year's resolution. Now I didn't have a Bible. was living in a basement apartment an hour away from home. So I go home for Christmas break. And I go down to my dad's library and I pull out an old Bible. I go up to my dad and I say, hey dad, New Year's. I'm reading this. (laughs) My dad looked at me and says, okay, we'll see about that. And New Year's Eve comes along. Doing what you do at New Year's Eve when you're in the world. But New Year's Day comes along. I don't have Christian friends that I've kept in touch with since I was in high school. I'm away from home. I'm not plugged into a church. All I have is this book. But let me tell you something, this book is enough. But I didn't know how to read it. Thank God for Google. (laughs) Google Google.com. How to read the Bible. (laughs) It took me to the Gospels. And very quickly I realized two things. Just reading the Gospels. One, this is not the Jesus that people told me about. This is not the Jesus that people told me about that says, you must take up your cross and follow me. This is not the Jesus that people told me about that says, you must give up everything in order for you to experience abundant life. You must repent of your sins and turn to me in faith. 
And so the second conclusion came to my mind. By the way, this book is defining a Christian. By the way, Jesus is calling those who are not followers of Him to be followers of Him. I'm on my way to hell. And conviction settled in. And now I had to make a decision. And it wasn't immediate. It was exploring this word more and more. It was going to school and coming back and opening the word of God and reading it. It was going on YouTube and searching sermons. It was going and digging and and somehow praying because I couldn't even pray at one moment. I didn't understand how I could even talk to God. Because I saw myself worse than a drug dealer, worse than a gang member, worse than any of those things. I saw myself as a hypocrite. Claiming to be one thing but living another. Telling people in my college that I was a Christian when I lived no different than them. Born again. The Spirit of God filling you and changing your heart. That wasn't a reality in my life. I remember my knees could not even touch the ground because I was convicted. Can't even speak to you, Lord. And more and more, I found myself in the epistle saying, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, taking verses, putting them on sticky notes, putting them on the walls, and, and reading them until they became a reality in my heart. But here's the thing this is what happens. There still needed to be a, a choice in my life. Now the pressure was on. Because you're hanging out with your friends and you're not listening to the same music anymore on your laptop. You're listening to worship. What are you listening to? Hey, you want to go out to the bar? No, not anymore. Why? I want to read my Bible. You're what? (laughs) Now they're talking about something and you're not involved in the conversation anymore. Dude, what's wrong with you? You're different. You're changing. And now you feel the pressure. Now you're coming along that crossroad. And on that sign it says, narrow way here, broad way here. Make a choice. So I found myself on a long weekend in 2012, somewhere in the month of January, later in that month, in my room, Weeping, crying, going to bed crying, waking up crying, because I really now realized that there's a cost to this thing. And it, weren't, it wasn't tears of pain or regret or sorrow, tears of joy, but really just trying to figure out, God, if I do this, are my friends going to be turned off by you? If I do this, are the people close to my life going to reject you because they know they're going to lose me? And here it was on that Saturday night in... January 2012 where the Holy Spirit spoke not audibly, internally and made it so clear Daniel, if you want to keep everything in this world, you can all the things that you have, you can have and you might even have more of it but there's one truth that you must understand you will not have me or if you're willing to give up everything And I mean everything. You have me. 
No promise for ministry, no promise for a successful life, no promise for prosperity. Just Jesus. He's enough. And my answer was this in in that room, weeping. Lord, I've had everything else. I've experienced everything else. I've tasted everything else. Does not satisfy. Where can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And after that weekend, everything changed. And what I didn't know was that in that same month, my brother, who was a year younger than me, was in another place two hours away, living the same lifestyle as me. God saved them the same time. Another family member in another province, same time. So clearly God was doing a work in our family. And I want you to understand something tonight. Please. By God's grace, I'm humbled to be here tonight. But whenever I find myself having this kind of opportunity, whether it's a conference or one meeting, I press on this point. Are you sure you're saved? Have you taken up that cross when you said yes to Jesus? Have you truly repented of your sins? Have you truly been born from above? I'm not asking if you grew up in church. I'm not asking if you know John 3.16. I'm asking if you know God. Because I was one of those people sitting in those chairs right there and I heard the messages and everything else and nobody had the audacity and the boldness to say, hey, are you saved? Do you know God? Have you repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have this new hunger for the Word of God? Have your desires altered? Not saying that we don't sin anymore, but you sin differently. You don't look at sin the same way. You don't look at righteousness the same way. His his eyes are your eyes now. And that stony heart becomes a heart of flesh. Let me tell you something. When I got saved, everything was different. The air was different. The sun was different. The grass was different. Money was different. Clothing was different. Everything was different. There is nothing about being born again that is less than being supernatural. Do you understand that? Being born of the Spirit is supernatural. Everything changes when He infuses His Spirit into you and He gives you the power and the strength to follow Him. And so that cross is not a burden. That cross we ought to carry. It's not a weight. It's a privilege. You embrace that cross as you follow Him. And so I end with this. Like the woman at the well, I was seeking things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from the well that never runs dry. There are millions in this world that are craving the pleasures earthly things afford. But none can match the wondrous treasure that is found in Jesus Christ, my Lord. So, my neighbor, if the things the world gave you leaves hungers that won't go away, my blessed Lord will come and save you. 
if you simply humble yourself and pray. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole.